The purpose of this cassette is to introduce our listeners to an eminent theologian and pastor of the last century, Robert Louis Dabney. This cassette also contains a sermon preached by Dabney called The World White to Harvest, Reap or It Perishes. Dabney, since Dr. Thornwell's death, has been the most conspicuous figure and the leading theological guide of the Southern Presbyterian Church the most prolific theological writer that church has as yet produced. And for a period of over 40 years, one of the most distinguished and probably the most impressive teacher of its candidates for the ministry. As a preacher, as a teacher, and as a writer equally, he achieved greatness. And in the councils of the state and of the church alike, he was a factor of importance. In a wider theological history of the country and of the epoch he finds a worthy place, is one of the younger members of a remarkable company of theologians to whose lot it failed to reassert and reorganize the historical faith of the Reformed churches in the faith of the theological ferment which marked the earlier years of the 19th century. Dabney was born and reared in Virginia, served the Scots-Irish congregation at Tinkling Spring from 1847 to 1853, when he went to Union Theological Seminary, Hampton, Sydney. There, except for service in the Civil War, he pastored the college church till 1874 and prepared students for the gospel ministry until 1883. At the age of 64, in broken health, he moved to Texas to teach in the new university and to be the co-founder and professor in the Austin School of Theology. By any standard, Dabney was a remarkable man. At the age of 22, he was offered the editorship of a newspaper, and when he was 40, Charles Hodge pleaded for his help at Princeton Seminary. A. A. Hodge, Charles's son, was to call him the best teacher of theology in the United States, if not in the world. Neither of these invitations was accepted, but in 1862 he did answer a call from General Jackson to serve as adjutant general of the Stonewall Brigade and in this capacity Jackson later referred to him as the most efficient officer he knew. In spiritual manners he remained a soldier until death. It is here that his life takes on a genuinely heroic aspect. There were some things Dabney could quietly bear, even the death of his three sons and his own total blindness in later years, but the retreat of the Christian church from the doctrinal commitment to which God had led her at the Reformation he could not endure. With his luminous mind, his godliness in which he has been likened to Calvin, Owen, and Edwards, and his burning zeal he resisted what so many heralded as a sign of progress. As a boy, he had a sense of responsibility. He shouldered responsibility, and acquitting himself well, he became the practical head of his family when he was thirteen years of age. He felt early his responsibility, not only for the welfare of his family, but to make all he could of himself. The obligation to duty was always strong with him. While many of his desires would have led him into corresponding forms of life, they were generally made to wait on, on his obligation to duty. Upon his becoming a Christian, his sense of responsibility to God is paramount established itself. And he became a type not of New England Puritanism, but of Puritanism of the noblest English age. If ever Puritan felt that God had put him into the world, given him a work to do for him, and expected the work to be done, 
and the account rendered, Robert L. Dabney felt it. Thus is explained in part his energy of passion against what he saw to be wrong, though it were supported by all the world. He, at least, believed that he was about his Lord's business, and that business he would do, though opposed by all the powers of earth and hell. Seldom has a man of more unwavering and absolute faithfulness to his convictions of right and duty lived. His Christianity was a Christianity begotten with a definite system of truth, and it was constantly nourished and informed by the same grand system of truth. He was a Calvinist and an intelligent Calvinist from his youth on. He accepted the Bible as the absolute word of God, as inspired not only in manner but in form. He accepted its whole humiliating portraiture of human sinfulness, its doctrine of the absolute necessity of salvation by grace, if salvation there be, its doctrine of predestination, its doctrine of vicarious atonement, of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, of justification through faith on the ground of the Redeemer's righteousness, of progress and sanctification, God's grace cooperating with and given efficiency to regenerate effort. This teaching of the Word of God he found verified in his own life. He saw in this whole gracious scheme the strongest possible inducement and motive to a holy life. Hence his view of the authority of God's law was peculiarly strong. The law and the testimony settled all duty with him. The ruling passion of his life was love to God and zeal for his glory. His hatred of false philosophies, of false views of sociology, of false theories of political rights was largely due to their dishonoring God. Their vicious influences upon the true religious life of the church and people he was constantly showing. His was the Christianity of principle. He endeavored to discover from the scriptures the divine teaching. He hailed what he hailed from the convictions that it was God's teaching. Walk in it he would, whether men would approve or whether they would disapprove. This reign of principle gave strength to his life, hence the leaning of many of his brethren on him. Men believed in his faith. Many men who sat under him in the early years of his professorial life have given expression to their conviction that Dr. Debney was in the most godly man they had ever seen. Both the students of his earlier and of his later years united saying that he was like the Apostle John on the lovely side of his character. One of them says, How he strove to be like his master who was meek and lowly in heart. One proof of his practical godliness is found in the fact that he was a man to whom people in trouble were wont to go in order to find help. They could do this because, in spite of all his positiveness of character, he was meek and humble. He had compassion on the weak and ignorant. Coupled with this was a large generosity in judging of the characters of his fellow men, a large Christ-like love for them. He was remarkably free from base affections, jealousy, envy, and so on. He knew what slander was and despised it. Except for the purpose of subserving the interests of truth, he rarely related anything of any man that was discreditable to that man. And it may well be doubted whether any minister in the country showed day by day more genuine and considerate regard for his brethren in the ministry and for men in general. He was far superior to many who criticized him in this respect. With age and blindness there came upon him a beautiful, mellowed sweetness of character, and his great heart dropped unction on any creature around him.
He was a preeminent preacher to preachers and to an audience of highly intelligent people of earnest purpose. He had the power of simplification and illustration in a rare degree. But he was not given sufficiently to the use of this power before the average audience. He saw so much in his text, so many important relations and bearings of the truth of it, and he was so habitually engaged in doing his thinking in concise form that he unconsciously put any but a very superior audience to paces which many could not hold. It was like a giant's endeavor to make little children step the distance of his own swinging strides. This was not so true of him in his younger days as it became in his prime. In those days the people liked to hear him preach. They gave proof of it by crowding his audience rooms. The same thing was true of his preaching in the army. His preaching gripped the men of the line, many of whom, however, were as intelligent and vigorous in mind as their officers, but his long work as a teacher told on his preaching. It became the sort for men who could think and were willing to do it. The great impression he made was of didactic power. He seemed to be clearing with huge instruments the highway of truth for men to walk in with the threat of awful consequences if they did not walk in it and a promise of glory if they should walk in it. He was the greatest teacher that most of his pupils ever knew. Such at any rate was the judgment of two-thirds or three-fourths of the men that passed under him. This two-thirds or three-fourths embracing its fair proportion of strong and gifted students who have themselves become distinguished. He did more to arouse to fuller mental life, to develop to the utmost their independence and vigor of mind, to tone their characters up to rock-like firmness than any other teacher they had ever known. He had the essential faculty to successful teaching of getting at the positions of his pupils, comprehending their difficulties, putting himself in their places. He was certain of his ground, dogmatic in the good sense, unmistakably clear, and decided in the repudiation of error, being moved after a sort, as he was who said, The zeal of thy house has eaten me up. The student always knew where Dabney stood and whither he led. He believed, too, that the feeling is the temperature of thought, was not ashamed to be seen to feel for the truth, went out in his great heart with it, Hence the truth he taught burnt in on the student, made an indelible impression. He had that other rare faculty of the rare and exceptionally great teacher of seeming to reproduce himself in a measure in his pupils. They say, quote, he not only gave to us his truth, but himself. He begot in his men something akin to his own vigor and strength, his love of truth and God. Dr. Dabney won for himself a place amongst the few greatest theologians hitherto produced on the American continent. His place in theology may be roughly indicated as follows. He was a moderate but thorough-going Calvinist, believing himself in thorough harmony with the doctrinal portion of the Westminster Standards, of which he was perhaps the most sympathetic and able expounder in his century. He is the most biblical of the great American theologians, his exposition in defense of the Westminster Standards is more of the nature of an exposition of the Scriptures bearing on the parts of the system. While he uses profound common-sense philosophy in illustration of the teaching of Scripture and his subsidiary support for those teachings, it is confidently believed that neither Shedd nor Thornwell nor either of the Hodges has relied so little on philosophy or paid so high and constant deference to the Scriptures. Not that any one of these grand men did not regard the word of the Lord as final, 
but that in practice no one of them made so much of the thus saith the Lord in comparison with his philosophical arguments. Not one of them was so profound a philosopher, no, not even Thornwell. Not one of them had such profound humility or saw so clearly the infinite difference between the profoundest human speculation and the absolute teaching of God's Word. Dabney theology marks him out as very much superior to Dr. Charles Hodge as a thinker of profundity and power and a stimulator of thought. Hodge's great three-volume work is very valuable as a sort of encyclopedia of theological belief, but for exposition and vindication of the creed, which they held in common, for wrestling faithfully with hard points, for mastery of difficulties, Dabney is vastly superior. The three great American theologians of the century were Shedd, Thornwell, and Dabney. The two former excelled in their expression, but Dabney's style in his theology, while terse and powerful, is often raw, but nevertheless it has hands and feet, and it moves and grapples. Of these three, Dabney's theological writings entitled him to the highest place. The peculiar genius of Dabney's exposition of the theology of the Christian scriptures brings him into closer accord with the great John Calvin himself in several essential particulars than any other modern American theologian is brought by his system. Calvin and Dabney are alike remarkable for never dodging hard problems and for never slurring them over. Every student of Calvin knows this to be true of the great Genevan. Every student of Dabney, when wrestling with a difficulty in the Calvinistic system, pulls down Dabney with the confident expectation of seeing him resolutely grapple with that difficulty. He never dodged. For sheer philosophic mental might, we suppose that old Jonathan Edwards was Dr. Dabney's equal. Even in this case, a greater caution of Dabney pulls a balance in his favor. However, it is to be remembered that Dabney stood on the shoulders of both Edwards and Archibald Alexander. A fellow reverend writing about Dabney's practical philosophy says, Dabney's exposition of free agency is by far the most satisfactory I have ever seen. Jonathan Edwards' masterly work on the will cannot equal our author's discussion, either in clearness or in full bringing to light of all the facts of consciousness which bear upon this supreme theme, Dabney solves a problem and easily unties this difficult knot. Dabney was a political economist. He was a statesman. He was a patriot. And he was a friend. Robert Dabney was a friend. Here the heart swells at the memory of such a friend and then breaks into weeping at the law. He loved with all his heart. He did nothing by halves. It is not always understood that true love, whether it be of wife or child or friend or God, is only measured by the heart's capacity. Loving one with all the heart lessens not the measure for others, and the heart's capacity for love is only enlarged by enlarging the circle of its bestowment. How wide was his circle of friends, and how large a heart he gave. He was also a servant of God. In all these phases of his life, Dabney was somewhat more than preacher, teacher, theologian, philosopher, economist, statesman, patriot, friend. He was a servant of God. That was his characteristic everywhere and always. He was a servant of that God who has revealed his will in the scripture of the Old and New Testaments. That will he tried to make the law of his life. He was not a sinless man. His massive nature was qualified all through his long and vexed life with sin, but grace dominated. As a holy man, he deserves to be ranked with Augustine and Calvin, Owen and Baxter and Edwards. Dr. Dabney was a great man. We cannot tell just how great yet. 
One cannot see how great Mount Blanc is while standing at its foot. One hundred years from now, men will be able to see him better. Also contained on this cassette are two letters written on the occasion of the death of two of Dabney's sons. It gives an idea of the trials that he suffered and the piety he showed therein. The following sermon preached by Dabney is called The World White to Harvest, Reap or It Perishes. A sermon preached for the Board of Foreign Missions of the Presbyterian Church in New York, May 2, 1858. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. John 4:35. The most familiar truth are the most influential. This is a fact which our ambition to be noble often causes us to overlook. Much that is ingenuous, and at the same time correct, has been said about the commercial, civil, and social results of missions and of Christianity. There is some danger of our prosecuting the evangelical work from these considerations to the exclusion of the more sacred motives drawn from eternity, and the latter must ever be the mainspring of the church's zeal. The same vast old familiar truth which made Paul, Peter, Jesus Christ missionaries that the whole human race are children of wrath and in the highway to everlasting ruin these must move our missionary efforts also. Our faith should constantly recur to these great facts to receive from them fresh impulses of their might. This is just a method of our Savior in the text when he introduces the enforcement of gospel effort by saying, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. And the preacher of the gospel ought to be far more ambitious to be able to restate these trite but potent doctrines with the seriousness, fervor, and palpable faith appropriate to their awful importance than to win the applause of his brethren by an eloquent or ingenuous novelty. There is a more reason that we should recur to our principles now that infidelity so boldly charges that the church is no longer impaled in her evangelical toils by a vital and actual faith in the threatenings of sacred scripture against the nations that forget God. They have found, alas, but too much pretext for the taunt and the biting contrast between the tremendous urgency of our creed and the sluggishness of our endeavors. You recognize the text as a part of the discourse uttered by our Savior after his interview with the Samaritan woman at the well. She had gone for a moment to the town to call her friends to hear the gracious teacher. Meantime, the disciples returned with supplies for our Savior's weariness, which had arrested him first at that spot. But now they find the claims of hunger and fatigue silenced in him by his more consuming zeal for souls, his meat, his solace for toil, his cordial for fainting nature, is to fulfill his great mission as teacher and redeemer of the perishing. He proceeds to assign the reason for his self-denying diligence in this work in the words, The fields are white already to harvest. This illustration is a favorite one with our Savior. His propriety is evidently in this fact that when the pale yellow of maturity colors the fields of wheat, the precious grain must be gathered at once, or else it will fall to the ground in peri. The harvest labor of the husbandman is peculiarly one which admits no delay. When the golden crop beckons him with its nodding plumes, he must bestir himself, disregardful of scorching heat and panting fatigue. Next month it will be too late for mildew and rot will have reaped his fields before him. So the labor of the spiritual husbandman is also harvest toil, 
The harvest of souls awaits no man's sluggishness. Death is a field with his flashing scythe, mowing down the nations and gathering his sheaves for hell fire, so that the work of redeeming love for them must be done at once or never. And this is the point of our Savior's reasoning. This is obviously true of each generation of sinners, as to its own generation of Christian laborers, on the supposition that the whole world is indeed subject to condemnation. Our Savior evidently extends the application of the fact to all His servants in the harvest as well to Himself. But I am persuaded that His words include a meaning more extensive and profound. Not only is the short lifetime of each generation the harvest time of its souls, some eras of the world are harvest seasons as to many preceding and subsequent generations. There is then a conjunction of rare influences and circumstances rendering evangelical labors practicable and successful so that a hundredfold as much may be done as afterward when that conjunction is dissolved. Such a season the sacred scriptures clearly describe the era of Christ and his apostles to have been. Then the fullness of time had come, chosen by God to bring his first begotten into the world. Then was fulfilled a gracious and golden hour, foreseen by Isaiah, for Christ to call to the isles and the people from afar, in an acceptable time and in a day of salvation. So deemed Paul when he said to the men of his age, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If this apprehension is correct, the text will be found to carry for us a twofold meaning. The first of the two important truths which it teaches is this, that the souls of this generation of mankind will quickly perish unless they be saved by the gospel efforts of Christ's church. You will perceive, my brethren, that we are confronted here with that solemn question on which professed followers of Christ are by no means agreed whether the souls of the heathen will certainly perish without the gospel. Let us look briefly for the answer the sacred scripture gives it. For if the present ignorance of the heathen exempts them from the curse of a broken law and a fallen nature, while their instruction in revealed truth would subject them to it, like ourselves, and if we may anticipate the probable success of that instruction in turning them to Christ by the obduracy of sinners at home, then the result of our misplaced zeal may mainly be to scatter broadcast the gratuitous seeds of an aggravated damnation. It were better to center all our energies on the rescue of sinners at home, who have certainly made themselves subject to the curse by their neglect of Christian light. But if the heathen are also destined to perish inevitably, unless a church thrusts forth its laborers into the harvest, then here is a great, the dreadful motive, next to God's glory, which should strain every nerve of every redeemed soul to rescue all he can. Number 1. It has been urged that a just God cannot punish the breach of a law or neglect of a gospel which a heathen could not know. I answer, he will punish no one unjustly. But hath he left himself without witness among them? The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Idolatry and its crimes are not all sins of ignorance. For the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. 
They who have no Bible may still look up to the moon walking in brightness and the stars watching in obedient order. They may see in the joyous sunbeams a smile of the universal Father and in the fruitful shower the droppings of His bounty. They hear the rending thunder utter His wrath and the matin jubilee of the birds sing His praise. The green hills are swelled with His goodness. The trees of the wood rejoice before Him with every quiver of their foliage in the summer air. And the floods clap their hands in praise as their multitudinous waves leap up, flashing the laughing sunlight from their crests. Are they then without blame who turn aside from all this to worship abominations? Nature by her universal anthem says, No because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Or should we suppose that while every nominal Christian sometimes disobeys his own conscience, heathens are so much pure that they never do? To many moral distinctions they may be blind, but among them, as everywhere else among our fallen race, men's light is better than their walk. When the pagans bow down to vile stocks, or defile themselves with universal fraud and lies, infanticide, murder of parents, and all abominations, shall we be told that natural conscience utters no protest? Be it besotted as it may, it cannot wholly tolerate these things. It were a libel on him who made man in his own image to say that even heathen idolatries and crimes could so crush out the moral sense the noblest trait of his handiwork in us. No, there is not a rational heathen in the world who, however blind his conscience, does not sometimes violate that conscience. There at least is sin. There is ground for the righteous judgment of God against him. For as many as a sin without law shall also perish without law. Nor need we tarry long for that other objection that a merciful God will surely smile upon that man who sincerely desires to do his duty, and who lives honestly up to the best creed which it, it was possible for him to know, erroneous though that creed be. The short answer is that among Adam's son there is no such man. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Every man comes short of his own creed, whatever it may be. These objections lie too near the surface of the question to detain us long. We are compelled to admit the sorrowful truth by reasons far more profound. And one of these is suggested by the pleas which have just been set aside. It is this, number one, that while all men are guilty, no pagan, no infidel scheme provides an adequate atonement. The necessity of this full atonement for pardon sin is declared by every attribute of God, by every interest of His universal government, and by all the teachings of His word and works. Do not these attributes and principles direct His government of pagans as well as of nominal Christians? Is not God everywhere the same? He will render to every man according to his deeds to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God." Yea, the heathen conscience has itself written its necessity for atonement all over their superstitions in horrid characters of torment and blood, their ablutions, their penances, 
and self-tortures their costly and ceaseless obligations, the sweat and dust of their pilgrimages, the abhorrent offerings of the fruit of the body for the sin of the soul, confess at once a sense of guilt and a conscious need of satisfaction for it. And in the more refined creeds of Islam and Deism, we read the same confession in their proposal to compensate for their guilt by alms, good works, reformations, or repentings. But all these atonements are inadequate, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Least of all would these speculative persons with whom Bible assertions are of little weight admit that these spurious virtues or senseless abominations can atone for guilt. They only add to it. The only atonement is that which God has provided for us in the sufferings of His divine Son, and the only way by which anyone can share this atonement is the exercise of evangelical faith. Our argument, then, is this, that all pagans are self-convicted of some sins, at least against the light of nature. No sin can be pardoned without atonement, but the gospel is the only proposal of atonement to man. Number two. Paganism is also fatally defective with regard to the other great want of the human soul, moral renovation. Here we take our stand upon the great doctrine of our confession, that all the race are dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. However men may differ in degrees of wickedness, the best equally with the worst are wholly prone to worldliness instead of spirituality, and the hearts of all are fully set in them to disobey some of God's known commands. The natural will of every man dislikes and rejects the holiness, the communion, and the service of God, and this by the perpetual and certain force of those innate dispositions which determine rational volitions. No power but one from without and above can renew that will, because all within it is, of course, determined by those controlling dispositions. I shall not affront you by supposing it necessary to offer proof of these statements, such as the inheritance which our own eyes see all in Christian lands, deriving from their first father. But we have the testimony of God that all the heathens bear to Adam the same relation. He hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. Acts 17.26 And if our smaller vices mournfully substantiate this view of man's moral state here, how much more may we assert it of the heathen from the general and loathsome corruption of their lives? Now except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here is a prohibition, not pronounced only by the divine justice, but made inexorable by a natural necessity. The carnal mind cannot enjoy a holy and spiritual heaven, but this is the only state of real and everlasting welfare which a holy God can appoint for moral beings. To be holy is to be unhappy. Were the justice of God dethroned and the very throne of judgment demolished, were all his holy attributes repudiated, and all the interests of his kingdom disregarded, still the truth, ye must be born again, would remain a flaming sword, turning every way to keep the path to paradise. But no pagan creed provides means or agency for the new birth. The very conception is strange to them. 
Their languages lack the very terms for expressing the holiness which it produces. So far are their theologies from any sanctifying influence. Their morals are immoral. The deities which they invite man to adore and imitate are often impersonations of monstrous crime, and the heaven which is to reward their zeal is a pandemonium of wickedness triumphant and immortalized. Where now are the claims of those virtuous heathens, of Confucius and Aristides, who are supposed to have walked uprightly according to that scanty light of nature vouchsafed by providence? We might waive the considerations that every earthly child of man is condemned by his own standard, and that justice must be satisfied for these shortcomings. Where is the upright heathen, who has shown true spirituality of heart, whose gratitude and love towards a holy God, whose hungering for sanctification, whose delight in communion with heaven, have proved him meet for the inheritance of the saints in light? Have travelers or missionaries found such hearts formed under the tutelage of paganism? Now, if we decide, as we must, that the most magnanimous gentleman in this Christian land, the most amiable wife, mother, or sister, whose understanding approves the Bible, and whose social life is regulated by higher ethics than ever Aristides dreamed, that he also must be new created unto holiness before he can see God, it is simple absurdity to talk of heathen men admitted to heaven for the uprightness of their intentions. But let us speak of the common grade of pagans, of those whose whole life was brutal vice, whose hearts were all uncleanness, whose very worship was a carnival of lasciviousness and blood. What would that heaven be to them, which we awfully recognize as too pure to admit the most ingenuous of our sons, the loveliest of our daughters, whose social graces are the perfume of our homes and our hearts, while they are unregenerated? Let us suppose that the whole sentence of God against the Gentiles were, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still, and he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. Then look at that earthly hail of destitution, domestic tyranny, public barbarity, revenge and unbridled passion, which heathen society often makes in this life, and judge what these elements will evolve when let loose in the world of spirits, without social restraints or the illusions of hope, and deprived of those animal enjoyments which now form their chief happiness. And fine, the heathen like us are depraved. They need a new birth. Therefore they cannot be saved without the gospel, which is the only instrument of regeneration. We know there are Christians who reject this conclusion, thinking God cannot justly condemn any man who is not endowed with all such means, and ability for knowing and loving him has put his destiny in every sense within his own choice. These means the heathen do not fully possess, where their ignorance is invincible. The principle asserted is that God cannot justly hold anyone responsible who is not blessed with both natural and moral ability. I answered that our doctrine concerning the heathen places them in precisely equal condition with those unhappy men in Christian lands who have the outward word but experience no effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. God requires of the latter to obey that law and gospel of which they enjoy the clearer lights. And the obstacle which ensures their failure to comply, not indeed with any physical constraint, but with a moral certainty, is a depraved heart which is unwilling to submit. 
of the heathen, God would require no more than full obedience to the limited light of nature which his providence has granted them. And the obstacle which ensures their failure also is the same, a depraved will. When God holds the heathen responsible for their light, therefore he deals with them no more unfairly than with the finally impenitent under the gospel. This is too obvious to be denied, and hence it has been found necessary in order to maintain the moral ability of sinners to assert that every human being, Christian and pagan, enjoys a common sufficient grace consisting of various influences alluring him to the right which restores the depraved will to its equilibrium. And it is said, where any heart yields to this common grace, God's mercy and fidelity stands pledged to second those movements of the yielding soul and bestow all the helps necessary to redemption. And if a poor pagan, guided by this universal light, begins to feel after God, if haply he may find him, Surely the Father of mercies will not leave unrewarded the strivings which His own grace has awakened, but will find some way to give saving knowledge and the Holy Spirit. The fatal answer is that the Scriptures, properly understood, are silent concerning such universal sufficient grace. Our experience contradicts it, for we usually see the actual operations of God's grace far less extensive than the means. How, then, can it be plausibly said that, in other cases, the grace is extended so far beyond its outward means? So far as God from extending a universal gracious influence sufficient to restore equilibrium to a perverted will. Paul tells us that whom he will he hardeneth. And of the pagans especially, it is said, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Once more, if this grace is sufficient, why does it not bring all alike to God? If it is successful in some cases only because he adds something to its influences, then in the other cases it was not sufficient grace. If he added nothing then the different result would show that the common grace found in those cases left perversity of heart to overcome. All men would not be in the same spiritual condition towards God as the Bible most distinctly asserts they are. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. Who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? We find then that the foundation's truth of redemption Forbid us to hope for the escape of the heathen. We can only indulge the thought at the expense of those prime axioms on which our whole theology and our own salvation depends, while the customary palliations of their danger do but touch the surface of the terrible case. Every child of Adam, Christian or pagan, must have justifying righteousness, and he must have a new heart. We know not that adult and rational men can obtain these gifts, save by the intelligent reception of the gospel. I say not the reception of the full details of the New Testament, but of that rudimental gospel and those great primal conceptions of God, holiness, sin, gratuitous, justification, and sanctification, embraced by a living faith and hope, which pervade the patriarchal as well as the evangelical revelations. Neither is there salvation in any other, 
For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But admitting all this, may we not still hope that there are elect Gentiles, objects of God's sovereign and omnipotent grace, and that they receive from Him those gospel rudiments in some way extraordinary and unknown to the church? Would God that we had abundant grounds to hope this? But alas, experience and revelation, while they may not absolutely denounce its possibility, command us to act just as though all depended upon the agency of the church. Have our missionaries found among the heathen hitherto untaught of man the fruits of such divine teachings? Have they told us of men who, while they may not have learned to worship Jehovah by the names we use, yet know and love a being of true Godhead and holiness, who hate sin, trust in free grace, strive after righteousness, and triumph over death by hope? We fear the instances are few and doubtful. If there are cases which relieve the common picture of selfishness, fraud, and lust, they are but instances of worldly uprightness. The heathen, like the unredeemed of our own land, are found to live in bondage to evil desires and a guilty conscience, and to die in superstitious delusion or beastly apathy or despair. And while God has not said that He sends His saving truth as a medium of His saving grace by no hand but that of a Christian effort, every example and precept of the Scriptures bids us act as though this were true. The Great Commission is, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature, as though every human being under heaven were dependent on this loving ministry of the church. The inspired preachers, by their consuming zeal in the missionary work, implied the same truth. Why did Paul, for instance, submit to dangers of death off to receive of the Jews forty stripes save one five times, to be beaten thrice with rods, to be stoned, to spend a night and a day in the deep, to endure varied perils, weariness, watchings, hunger and thirst, cold and nakedness? Like his divine master, he believed that a harvest of precious souls was perishing for lack of Christian reapers. And when the charge of insanity was provoked by his gigantic labors, from men too dead and unbelieved to comprehend him, his simple solution was, quote, The love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead. And in one word, God gives us the rule of our hopes and duties as to the unevangelized world in the epistle to the Romans. There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? We conclude, then, that the church should feel and act towards the human race substantially as though all without the gospel were perishing forever. Do any murmur at our earnest, yea, vehement zeal to drive the dread conviction home upon you? 
I answer, it is not because we are glad to have it so, but because we sadly know it is so. We think our true compassion is to face the dire reality, and thus rouse ourselves and you to that burning activity which alone can mitigate it. That, that is but a false and puling tenderness, which professes not to see it, in order that its indolence may evade the toils of the rescue. Should I discover one of these dwellings burning over its sleeping inmates, while you, their neighbors, were skeptical of their danger? My cry of fire would be no argument of my delight in the catastrophe, but of my zeal to arrest it. And now that I see a world threatened by the devouring fire of hell, while the church slumbers, that ought to stay the destruction. Must I not lift up my voice like a trumpet? Oh, if we could but relieve the danger of the heathen by arguing that it was slight, how joyfully would we plead the glowing theme! But this cannot be. Here then is a vast yet simple case. At least four-fifths of the thousand millions of our race are without the Bible and must therefore sink into hell as fast as death can mow them down. In about one-third of a century, the generation of our contemporaries will be forever beyond the reach of our love. We seem often to imagine that India, that China, that Africa will still remain a century hence awaiting our tardy zeal, but it is a terrible delusion. Unless we bestir ourselves now, the India, the China of today will be gone, and another India, another China, inheritors of their crimes and miseries, will be there to wait a little time upon the succor of another Christian generation. And then unless our successors be more prompt than we have been to plunge into perdition in their turn. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.